Book One, Chapter Four of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book One, Chapter Four A Greenwood Company. Matcham was well rested and revived, and the two lads, winged by what Dick had seen, hurried through the remainder of the outwood, crossed the road in safety, and began to mount into the high ground of Tunstall Forest. The trees grew more and more in groves, with heathy places in between, sandy, gorsy, and dotted with old yews. The ground became more and more uneven, full of pits and hillocks, and with every step of the ascent the wind still blew the shriller, and the trees bent before the gusts like fishing-rods. They had just entered one of the clearings, when Dick suddenly clapped down upon his face among the brambles, and began to crawl slowly backward towards the shelter of the grove. Matcham, in great bewilderment, for he could see no reason for this flight, still imitated his companion's course, and it was not until they had gained the harbour of a thicket that he turned and begged him to explain. For all reply, Dick pointed with his finger. At the far end of the clearing, a fir grew high above the neighbouring wood, and planted its black shock of foliage clear against the sky. For about fifty feet above the ground the trunk grew straight and solid like a column. At that level it split into two massive boughs, and in the fork, like a mast-headed seaman, there stood a man in a green tabard, spying far and wide. The sun glistened upon his hair, with one hand he shaded his eyes to look abroad, and he kept slowly rolling his head from side to side, with the regularity of a machine. The lads exchanged glances. "'Let us try to the left,' said Dick. "'We have near-fallen fowley, Jack.' Ten minutes afterwards they struck into a beaten path. "'Here is a piece of forest that I know not.' Dick remarked, "'Where goeth me this track?' "'Let us even try,' said Matcham. A few yards further the path came to the top of a ridge, and began to go down abruptly into a cup-shaped hollow. At the foot, out of a thick wood of flowering hawthorn, two or three roofless gables, blackened as if by fire, and a single tall chimney marked the ruins of a house. "'What may this be?' whispered Matcham. "'Nay, by the mass, I know not,' answered Dick. "'I am all at sea. Let us go warily.' With beating hearts they descended through the hawthorns. Here and there they passed signs of recent cultivation. Fruit-trees and pot-herbs ran wild among the thicket. A sundial had fallen in the grass. It seemed they were treading what once had been a garden." yet a little farther, and they came forth before the ruins of the house. It had been a pleasant mansion and a strong. A dry ditch was dug deep about it, but it was now choked with masonry, and bridged by a fallen rafter. The two farther walls still stood, the sun shining through their empty windows, but the remainder of the building had collapsed, and now lay in a great carn of ruin, grimed with fire. Already in the interior, a few plants were springing green among the chinks. "'Now I bethink me,' whispered Dick, 
This must be Grimstone. It was a hold of one Simon Malmesbury. Sir Daniel was his bane. Twas Bennet Hatch that burned it, now five years agone. In sooth, twas pity, for it was a fair house. Down in the hollow, where no wind blew, it was both warm and still, and Matcham, laying one hand upon Dick's arm, held up a warning finger. Hist, he said. There came a strange sound, breaking on the quiet. It was twice repeated ere they recognized its nature. It was the sound of a big man clearing his throat, and just then a hoarse, untuneful voice broke into singing. Then up and spake the master, the king of the outlaws, what make ye here a merry men among the greenwood shaws? And Camelin made answer, he never looked a down, oh, they must need to walk in wood that may not walk in town. The singer paused, a faint clink of iron followed, and then silence. The two lads stood looking at each other. Whoever he might be, their invisible neighbour was just beyond the ruin. And suddenly the colour came into Matcham's face, and next moment he had crossed the fallen rafter, and was climbing cautiously on the huge pile of lumber that filled the interior of the roofless house. Dick would have withheld him, had he been in time. As it was, he was fain to follow. Right in the corner of the ruin two rafters had fallen crosswise, and protected a clear space no larger than a pew in church. Into this the lads silently lowered themselves. There they were perfectly concealed, and through an arrow loophole commanded a view upon the farther side. Peering through this they were struck stiff with terror at their predicament. To retreat was impossible. They scarce dared to breathe. Upon the very margin of the ditch, not thirty feet from where they crouched, an iron cauldron bubbled and steamed above a glowing fire, and close by, in an attitude of listening, as though he had caught some sound of their clamouring among the ruins, a tall, red-faced, battered-looking man stood poised, an iron spoon in his right hand, a horn and a formidable dagger at his belt. Plainly this was the singer. Plainly he had been stirring the cauldron, when some incautious step among the lumber had fallen upon his ear. A little further off another man lay slumbering, rolled in a brown cloak, with a butterfly hovering above his face. All this was in a clearing white with daisies, and at the extreme verge a bow, a sheaf of arrows, and part of a deer's carcass hung upon a flowering hawthorn. Presently the fellow relaxed from his attitude of attention, raised the spoon to his mouth, tasted its contents, nodded, and then fell again to stirring and singing. "'Oh, they must need to walk in wood that may not walk in town,' he croaked, taking up his song where he had left it. "'Oh, sir, we walk not here at all an evil thing to do, but if we meet with a good king's deer, to shoot a shaft in two. Still as he sang, he took from time to time another spoonful of the broth, blew upon it, and tasted it, with all the airs of an experienced cook. At length, apparently, he judged the mess was ready, for taking the horn from his girdle, he blew three modulated calls. The other fellow awoke, rolled over, brushed away the butterfly, and looked about him. "'How now, brother?' he said. "'Dinner?' "'I saw it,' replied the cook. 
Dinner it is, and a dry dinner, too, with neither ale nor bread. But there is little pleasure in the greenwood now. Time was when a good fellow could live here like a mitred abbot, set aside the rain and the white frosts. He had his heart's desire both of ale and wine. But now are men's spirits dead. And this John Amendall, save us and guard us, but a stuffed booby to scare crows withal. Nay, returned the other, ye are too set on meat and drinking, lawless. Bide ye a bit, the good time cometh. Look ye, returned the cook, I have even waited for this good time, sith that I was so high. I have been a grey friar, I have been a king's archer, I have been a shipman, and sailed the salt seas, and I have been in Greenwood before this, forsooth, and shot the king's deer. What cometh of it? Naught. I were better to have bided in the cloister. John Abbot availeth more than John Amendall. By her lady, here they come. One after another, tall, likely fellows began to stroll into the lawn. Each as he came produced a knife and a horn cup, helped himself from the cauldron, and sat down upon the grass to eat. They were very variously equipped and armed, some in rusty smocks, and with nothing but a knife and an old bow, others in the height of forest gallantry, all in Lincoln green, both hood and jerkin, with dainty peacock arrows in their belts, a horn upon a baldric, and a sword and dagger at their sides. They came in the silence of hunger, and scarce growled a salutation, but fell instantly to meet. There were perhaps a score of them already gathered, when a sound of suppressed cheering arose close by among the hawthorns, and immediately after five or six woodmen carrying a stretcher debouched upon the lawn. A tall, lusty fellow, somewhat grizzled, and as brown as a smoked ham, walked before them with an air of some authority, his bow at his back, a bright boar-spear in his hand. "'Lads!' he cried. "'Good fellows all, and my right merry friends. Ye have sung this while on a dry whistle, and lived at little ease. But what said I ever? Abide fortune constantly. She turneth, turneth swift. And, lo, here is her little firstling, even that good creature, Ale!' There was a murmur of applause as the bears set down the stretcher, and displayed a goodly cask. "'And now haste ye, boys,' the man continued, "'there is work toward. A handful of archers are but now come to the ferry. Muri and Blue is their wear. They are our butts. They shall all taste arrows. No man of them shall struggle through this wood. Four lads, we are here some fifty strong, each man of us most foully wronged, for some they have lost lands, and some friends, and some they have been outlawed, all oppressed.' Who then hath done this evil? Sir Daniel, by the rood. Shall he then profit? Shall he sit snug in our houses? Shall he till our fields? Shall he suck the bone he robbed us of? I trow not. He getteth him strength at law. He gaineth cases. Nay, there is one case he shall not gain. I have a writ here at my belt that, please the saints, shall conquer him." Lawless the cook was by this time already at his second horn of ale. He raised it as if to pledge the speaker. "'Master Ellis,' he said, "'ye are for vengeance. Well, it becometh ye. But your poor brother of the Greenwood, 
that had never lands to lose nor friends to think upon, looketh rather for his poor part to the profit of the thing. He had lever a gold noble and a pottle of canary wine than all the vengeances in purgatory. Lawless, replied the other, to reach the moat-house, Sir Daniel must pass the forest. We shall make that passage dearer, party, than any battle. Then, when he hath got to earth with such ragged handful as escapeth us, all his great friends fallen and fled away, and none to give him aid, we shall beleaguer that old fox about, and great shall be the fall of him. Tis a fat buck. He will make a dinner for us all. I returned Lawless, I have eaten many of these dinners beforehand, but the cooking of them is hot work, good Master Ellis. And meanwhile, what do we? We make black arrows, we write rhymes, and we drink fair cold water, that discomfortable drink. You're untrue, Will Lawless. You still smell of the Greyfriars' buttery. Greed is your undoing, answered Ellis. We took twenty pounds from Appleyard. We took seven marks from the messenger last night. A day ago we had fifty from the merchant. And today, said one of the men, I stopped a fat pardoner riding apace for Holywood. Here is his purse. Ellis counted the contents. Five score shillings, he grumbled. Fool, he had more in his sandal, or stitched into his tippet. Ye are but a child, Tom Cuckow. Ye have lost the fish. But for all that, Ellis pocketed the purse with nonchalance. He stood leaning on his boar-spear, and looked round upon the rest. They, in various attitudes, took greedily of the venison pottage, and liberally washed it down with ale. This was a good day. They were in luck, but business pressed, and they were speedy in their eating." The first comers had by this time even dispatched their dinner. Some lay down upon the grass and fell instantly asleep, like boa constrictors. Others talked together, or overhauled their weapons, and one, whose humour was particularly gay, holding forth an ale-horn, began to sing. "'Here is no law in good green shaw, here is no lack of meat.' "'Tis merry and quiet with deer for our diet in summer when all is sweet. "'Come winter again with wind and rain, come winter with snow and sleet. "'Get home to your places with hoods on your faces, and sit by the fire and eat.' "'All this while the two lads had listened and lain close. "'Only Richard had unslung his crossbow and held ready in one hand the windac, "'or grappling-iron that he used to bend it. Otherwise they had not dared to stir, and this scene of forest life had gone on before their eyes like a scene upon a theatre. But now there came a strange interruption. The tall chimney which overtopped the remainder of the ruins rose right above their hiding-place. There came a whistle in the air, and then a resounding smack, and the fragments of a broken arrow fell about their ears. Some one from the upper quarters of the wood perhaps the very sentinel they saw posted in the fir, had shot an arrow at the chimney-top. Matcham could not restrain a little cry, which he instantly stifled, and even Dick started with surprise, and dropped the windac from his fingers. But to the fellows on the lawn this shaft was an expected signal. They were all afoot together, tightening their belts, 
testing their bowstrings, loosening sword and dagger in the sheath. Ellis held up his hand. His face had suddenly assumed a look of savage energy. The white of his eyes shone in his sun-brown face. "'Ads,' he said, "'you know your places. Let not one man's soul escape you. Appleyard was a wet before a meal, but now we go to table. I have three men whom I will bitterly avenge. Harry Shelton, Simon Malmesbury, and—' striking his broad bosom— and Ellis Duckworth by the mass. Another man came, red with hurry, through the thorns. "'Tis not Sir Daniel,' he panted. "'They are but seven. Is the arrow gone?' "'It struck but now,' replied Ellis. "'A murrain,' cried the messenger. "'Methought I heard it whistle, and I go dinnerless.' In the space of a minute, some running, some walking sharply, according to their stations, were nearer or farther away, the men of the Black Arrow had all disappeared from the neighbourhood of the ruined house, and the cauldron and the fire, which was now burning low, and the dead deer's carcass on the hawthorn, remained alone to testify they had been there. End of chapter Book One, Chapter Five of the Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book One, Chapter Five Bloody as the Hunter. The lads lay quiet till the last footstep had melted on the wind. Then they arose, and with many an ache, for they were weary with constraint, clambered through the ruins, and recrossed the ditch upon the rafter. Matcham had picked up the windac and went first, Dick following stiffly with his crossbow on his arm. "'And now,' said Matcham, "'forth to Holywood.' "'To Holywood?' cried Dick. "'When good fellows stand shot?' Not I. I would see you hanged first, Jack. Ye would leave me, would ye? Matcham asked. Ay, by my sooth, returned Dick. And I be not in time to warn these lads I will go die with them. What? Would ye have me leave my own men that I have lived among? I trow not. Give me my windac. But there was nothing further from Matcham's mind. Dick, he said, you swear before the saints that you would see me safe to Holywood. Would you be forsworn? Would you desert me, a perjurer? Nay, I swear for the best, returned Dick. I meant it, too, but now. But look ye, Jack, turn again with me. Let me but warn these men, and, if needs must, stand shot with them. Then all shall be clear, and I will on again to Holywood and purge mine oath. Ye but deride me answered Matcham. These men you go to succour are the same that hunt me to my ruin. Dick scratched his head. I cannot help it, Jack, he said. Here is no remedy. What would ye? Ye run no great peril, man, and these are in the way of death. Death, he added. Think of it. What a murrain do ye keep me here for? Give me the windac. St. George, shall they all die? "'Richard Shelton,' said Matcham, looking him squarely in the face, 
would ye then join party with sir daniel have ye not ears heard ye not this ellis what he said or have ye no heart for your own kindly blood and the father that men slew harry shelton he said and sir harry shelton was your father as the sun shines in heaven what would ye dick cried again would ye have me credit thieves nay i have heard it before now returned matcham the fame goeth currently it was sir daniel slew him he slew him under oath in his own house he shed the innocent blood heaven wearies for the avenging on it and you the man's son ye go about to comfort and defend the murderer jack cried the lad i know not it may be what know i but see here this man hath bred me up and fostered me and his men i have hunted with and played among and to leave them in the hour of peril oh man if i did that i were stark dead to honour nay jack you would not ask it you would not wish me to be base but your father dick said matcham somewhat wavering your father and your oath to me you took the saints to witness my father cried shelton nay he would have me go if sir daniel slew him when the hour comes this hand shall slay sir daniel but neither him nor his will i desert in peril and for mine oath good jack ye shall absolve me of it here for the lives sake of many men that hurt you not and for mine honour ye shall set me free i dick never returned matcham an ye leave me ye are forsworn and so i shall declare it my blood heats said dick give me the windac give it me i'll not said matcham i'll save you in your teeth not cried dick i'll make you try it said the other they stood looking in each other's eyes each ready for a spring then dick leaped and though matcham turned instantly and fled in two bounds he was overtaken the windac was twisted from his grasp he was thrown roughly to the ground and dick stood across him flushed and menacing with doubled fist matcham lay where he had fallen with his face in the grass not thinking of resistance dick bent his bow i'll teach you he cried fiercely oath or no oath you may go hang for me and he turned and began to run matcham was on his feet at once and began running after him what do you want cried dick stopping what make you after me stand off we'll follow an i please said matcham this wood is free to me stand back by our lady returned dick raising his bow ah you're a brave boy retorted matcham shoot dick lowered his weapon in some confusion see here he said ye have done me ill enough go then go your way in fair wise or whether i will or not i must even drive you to it well said matcham doggedly ye are the stronger do your worst i shall not leave to follow thee dick until thou makest me he added dick was almost beside himself it went against his heart to beat a creature so defenceless and for the life of him he knew no other way to rid himself of this unwelcome and as he began to think 
perhaps untrue companion. "'Ye are mad, I think,' he cried. "'Fool fellow, I am hasting to your foes. As fast as foot can carry me, go I thither.' "'I care not, Dick,' replied the lad. "'If ye are bound to die, Dick, I'll die too. I would liever go with you to prison than to go free without you.' "'Well,' returned the other, "'I may stand no longer prating. Follow me, if ye must, but if ye play me false, it shall but little advance you, mark ye that. Shalt have a quarrel in thine inwards, boy.' So saying, Dick took once more to his heels, keeping in the margin of the thicket, and looking briskly about him as he went. At a good pace he rattled out of the dell, and came again into the more open quarters of the wood. To the left a little eminence appeared, spotted with golden gorse, and crowned with a black tuft of firs. "'I shall see from there,' he thought, and struck for it across a heathy clearing. He had gone but a few yards when Matcham touched him on the arm, and pointed. To the eastward of the summit there was a dip, and as it were, a valley passing to the other side. The heath was not yet out. All the ground was rusty, like an unscoured buckler, and dotted sparingly with yews, and there, one following another, Dick saw half a score green jerkins mounting the ascent, and, marching at their head, conspicuous by his boar-spear, Ellis Duckworth in person. One after another gained the top, showed for a moment against the sky, and then dipped upon the further side until the last was gone. Dick looked at Matcham with a kindlier eye. "'So ye are to be true to me, Jack?' he asked. "'I thought ye were of the other party.' Matcham began to sob. "'What cheer!' cried Dick. "'Now the saints behold us! Would ye snivel for a word?' <laughs> "'You hurt me!' sobbed Matcham. "'You hurt me when you threw me down. You are coward to abuse your strength.' "'Nay, that is fool's talk,' said Dick, roughly. "'You had no title to my windac, Master John. I would have done right to have well basted you.' If you go with me, you must obey me, and so come. Matcham had half a thought to stay behind, but, seeing that Dick continued to scour full tilt towards the eminence, and not so much as looked across his shoulder, he soon thought better of that, and began to run in turn. But the ground was very difficult and steep. Dick had already a long start, and had, at any rate, the lighter heels, and he had long since come to the summit crawled forward through the firs, and ensconced himself in a thick tuft of gorse, before Matcham, panting like a deer, rejoined him and lay down in silence by his side. Below in the bottom of a considerable valley, the short cut from Tunstall Hamlet wound downwards to the ferry. It was well beaten, and the eye followed it easily from point to point. Here it was bordered by open glades, there the forest closed upon it, every hundred yards it ran beside an ambush. Far down the path the sun shone on seven steel sallets, and from time to time, as the trees opened, Selden and his men could be seen riding briskly, still bent upon Sir Daniel's mission. The wind had somewhat fallen, but still tussled merrily with the trees, and perhaps, had Appleyard been there, he would have drawn a warning from the troubled conduct of the birds. "'Now, Mark,' Dick whispered, "'they be already well advanced into the wood.' 
their safety lieth rather in continuing forward. But see ye where this wide glade runneth down before us, and in the midst of it these two score trees make like an island? There were their safety, and they become sound as far as that, I will make shift to warn them. But my heart misgiveth me, they are but seven against so many, and they but carry crossbows. The longbow, Jack, will have the uppermost ever. Meanwhile, Selden and his men still wound up the path, ignorant of their danger, and momently drew nearer hand. Once indeed they paused, drew into a group, and seemed to point and listen. But it was something from far away across the plain that had arrested their attention, a hollow growl of cannon that came, from time to time, upon the wind, and told of the great battle. It was worth a thought, to be sure, for if the voice of the big guns were thus become audible in Tunstall Forest, the fight must have rolled ever eastward, and the day, by consequence, gone sore against Sir Daniel and the lords of the Dark Rose. But presently the little troop began again to move forward, and came next to a very open, heathy portion of the way, where but a single tongue of forest ran down to join the road. They were but just abreast of this, when an arrow shone flying. One of the men threw up his arms, his horse reared, and both fell and struggled together in a mass. Even from where the boys lay they could hear the rumour of the men's voices crying out. They could see the startled horses prancing. And presently, as the troop began to recover from their first surprise, one fellow beginning to dismount. A second arrow from somewhat farther off glanced in a wide arch. A second rider bit the dust. The man who was dismounting lost hold upon the rein, and his horse fled galloping, and dragged him by the foot along the road, bumping from stone to stone, and battered by the fleeing hoofs. The four who still kept the saddle instantly broke and scattered, one wheeled and rode shrieking towards the ferry. The other three, with loose rein and flying raiment, came galloping up the road from Tunstall. From every clump they passed, an arrow sped. Soon a horse fell, but the rider found his feet, and continued to pursue his comrades till a second shot dispatched him. Another man fell, then another horse. Out of the whole troop there was but one fellow left, and he on foot. Only, in different directions, the noise of the galloping of three riderless horses was dying fast into the distance. All this time not one of the assailants had for a moment shown himself. Here and there along the path horse or man rolled, undispatched, in his agony. But no merciful enemy broke cover to put them from their pain. The solitary survivor stood bewildered in the road beside his fallen charger. He had come the length of that broad glade, with the island of timber pointed out by Dick. He was not, perhaps, five hundred yards from where the boys lay hidden, and they could see him plainly, looking to and fro in deadly expectation. But nothing came, and the man began to pluck up his courage, and suddenly unslung and bent his bow. At the same time, by something in his action, Dick recognized Selden. At this offer of resistance, from all about him in the covert of the woods there went up the sound of laughter. A score of men, at least, for this was the very thickest of the ambush, joined in this cruel and untimely mirth. Then an arrow glanced over Selden's shoulder, and he leaped and ran a little back. Another dart struck quivering at his heel. 
he made for the cover. A third shaft leaped out right in his face, and fell short in front of him. And then the laughter was repeated loudly, rising and re-echoing from different thickets. It was plain that his assailants were but baiting him, as men in those days baited the poor bull, or as the cat still trifles with the mouse. The skirmish was well over. Farther down the road, a fellow in green was already calmly gathering the arrows, and now, in the evil pleasure of their hearts, they gave themselves the spectacle of their poor fellow-sinner in his torture. Selden began to understand. He uttered a roar of anger, shouldered his crossbow, and sent a quarrel at a venture into the wood. Chance favoured him, for a slight cry responded. Then, throwing down his weapon, Selden began to run before him up the glade, and almost in a straight line for Dick and Matcham. The companions of the Black Arrow now began to shoot in earnest. But they were properly served, their chance had passed, most of them had now to shoot against the sun, and Selden, as he ran, bounded from side to side to baffle and deceive their aim. Best of all, by turning up the glade, he had defeated their preparations, there were no marksmen posted higher up than the one whom he had just killed or wounded, and the confusion of the foresters' councils soon became apparent. A whistle sounded thrice, and then again twice. It was repeated from another quarter. The woods on either side became full of the sound of people bursting through the underwood, and a bewildered deer ran out into the open, stood for a second on three feet, with nose in air, then plunged again into the thicket. Selden still ran, bounding, ever and again an arrow followed him, but still would miss. It began to appear as if he might escape. Dick had his bow armed, ready to support him. Even Matcham, forgetful of his interest, took sides at heart for the poor fugitive, and both lads glowed and trembled in the ardour of their hearts. He was within fifty yards of them, when an arrow struck him, and he fell. He was up again, indeed, upon the instant, but now he ran staggering, and, like a blind man, turned aside from his direction. Dick leaped to his feet and waved to him. "'Here!' he cried. "'This way! Here is help! Nay, run, fellow, run!' But just then a second arrow struck Selden in the shoulder, between the plates of his brigandine, and, piercing through his jack, brought him, like a stone, to earth. "'Oh, the poor heart!' cried Matcham, with clasped hands. And Dick stood petrified upon the hill, a mark for archery. Ten to one he had speedily been shot, for the foresters were furious with themselves, and taken unawares by Dick's appearance in the rear of their position. But instantly, out of a quarter of the wood, surprisingly near to the two lads, a stentorian voice arose, the voice of Ellis Duckworth. "'Hold!' it roared. "'Shoot not! Take him alive! It is young Shelton, Harry's son!' And immediately after a shrill whistle sounded several times, and was again taken up and repeated farther off. The whistle, it appeared, was John Amendall's battle-trumpet, by which he published his directions. "'Ah, foul fortune!' cried Dick. "'We are undone! Swiftly, Jack, come swiftly!' And the pair turned and ran back through the open pine-clump that covered the summit of the hill. End of chapter Book One, Chapter Six of The Black Arrow 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book One, Chapter Six To the Day's End. It was indeed high time for them to run. On every side the company of the Black Arrow was making for the hill. Some, being better runners, or having open ground to run upon, had far outstripped the others, and were already close upon the goal. Some, following valleys, had spread out to right and left, and outflanked the lads on either side. Dick plunged into the nearest cover. It was a tall grove of oaks, firm underfoot and clear of underbrush, and as it lay downhill they made good speed. There followed next a piece of open, which Dick avoided, holding to his left. Two minutes after, and the same obstacle arising, the lads followed the same course. Thus it followed that, while the lads, bending continually to the left, drew nearer and nearer to the high road and the river which they had crossed an hour or two before, the great bulk of their pursuers were leaning to the other hand and running towards Tunstall. The lads paused to breathe. There was no sound of pursuit. Dick put his ear to the ground, and still there was nothing. But the wind, to be sure, still made a turmoil in the trees, and it was hard to make certain. "'On again,' said Dick, and, tired as they were, and Matcham limping with his injured foot, they pulled themselves together, and once more pelted down the hill. Three minutes later they were breasting through a low thicket of evergreen. High overhead the tall trees made a continuous roof of foliage. It was a pillared grove, as high as a cathedral, and except for the hollies among which the lads were struggling, open and smoothly swarted. On the other side, pushing through the last fringe of evergreen, they blundered forth again into the open twilight of the grove. "'Stand!' cried a voice. And there, between the huge stems, not fifty feet before them, they beheld a stout fellow in green, sore blown with running, who instantly drew an arrow to the head and covered them. Matcham stopped with a cry, but Dick, without a pause, ran straight upon the forester, drawing his dagger as he went. The other, whether he was startled by the daring of the onslaught, or whether he was hampered by his orders, did not shoot. He stood wavering, and before he had time to come to himself, Dick bounded at his throat and sent him sprawling backward on the turf. The arrow went one way and the bow another with a sounding twang. The disarmed forester grappled his assailant, but the dagger shone and descended twice. There came a couple of moans, and then Dick rose to his feet again, and the man lay motionless, stabbed to the heart. "'On!' said Dick, and he once more pelted forward, Matcham trailing in the rear. To say truth, they made but poor speed of it by now, laboring dismally as they ran, and catching for their breath like fish. Matcham had a cruel stitch, and his head swam, and as for Dick, his knees were like lead, but they kept up the form of running with undiminished courage. Presently they came to the end of the grove. It stopped abruptly, and there, a few yards before them, was the high road from Risingham to Shoreby, lying at this point between two even walls of forest. At the sight Dick paused and as soon as he stopped running, he became aware of a confused noise, which rapidly grew louder. 
It was at first like the rush of a very high gust of wind, but soon it became more definite, and resolved itself into the galloping of horses. And then, in a flash, a whole company of men-at-arms came driving round the corner, swept before the lads, and were gone again upon the instant. They rode as for their lives, in complete disorder. Some of them were wounded. Riderless horses galloped at their side with bloody saddles. They were plainly fugitives from the great battle. The noise of their passage had scarce begun to die away towards Shoreby, before fresh hoofs came echoing in their wake, and another deserter clattered down the road. This time a single rider, and, by his splendid armour, a man of high degree. Close after him there followed several baggage-wagons, fleeing at an ungainly canter, the drivers flailing at the horses as if for life. These must have run early in the day, but their cowardice was not to save them, for just before they came abreast of where the lads stood wondering, a man in hacked armour, and seemingly beside himself with fury, overtook the wagons, and with the truncheon of a sword began to cut the drivers down. Some leaped from their places and plunged into the wood. The others he sabred as they sat, cursing them the while for cowards in a voice that was scarce human. All this time the noise in the distance had continued to increase. The rumble of carts, the clatter of horses, the cries of men, a great confused rumour came swelling on the wind, and it was plain that the rout of a whole army was pouring, like an inundation, down the road. Dick stood sombre. He had meant to follow the highway till the turn for Holywood, and now he had to change his plan. But above all, he had recognised the colours of Earl Risingham, and he knew that the battle had gone finally against the Rose of Lancaster. Had Sir Daniel joined, and was he now a fugitive and ruined, or had he deserted to the side of York, and was he forfeit to honour? It was an ugly choice. "'Come,' he said, sternly, and turning on his heel he began to walk forward through the grove, with Matcham limping in his rear. For some time they continued to thread the forest in silence. It was now growing late. The sun was setting in the plain beyond Ketley. The tree-tops overhead glowed golden, but the shadows had begun to grow darker, and the chill of the night to fall. "'If there were anything to eat!' cried Dick suddenly, pausing as he spoke. Matcham sat down and began to weep. "'Ye can weep for your own supper, but when it was to save men's lives your heart was hard enough,' said Dick contemptuously. "'Ye have seven deaths upon your conscience, Master John. I'll ne'er forgive you that.' "'Conscience!' cried Matcham, looking fiercely up. "'Mine! And ye have the man's red blood upon your dagger! And wherefore did ye slay him, the poor soul?' He drew his arrow, but he let not fly. He held you in his hand and spared you. Tis as brave to kill a kitten as a man that not defends himself. Dick was struck dumb. I slew him fair. I ran me in upon his bow, he cried. It was a coward blow, returned Matcham. Ye are but a lout and bully, Master Dick. Ye but abuse advantages. Let there come a stronger. We will see you truckle at his boot. You care not for vengeance, neither, for your father's death that goes unpaid, and his poor ghost that clamoureth for justice. But if there come but a poor creature in your hands that lacketh skill and strength, and would befriend you, down she shall go. 
Dick was too furious to observe that she. Mary, he cried, and here is news. Of any two, the one will still be stronger. The better man throweth the worse, and the worse is well served. Ye deserve a belting, Master Matcham, for your ill guidance and unthankfulness to meward, and what ye deserve ye shall have. And Dick, who even in his angriest temper still preserved the appearance of composure, began to unbuckle his belt. "'Here shall be your supper,' he said grimly. Matcham had stopped his tears. He was as white as a sheet, but he looked Dick steadily in the face and never moved. Dick took a step, swinging the belt. Then he paused, embarrassed by the large eyes and the thin, weary face of his companion. His courage began to subside. "'Say you were in the wrong, then,' he said lamely. "'Nay,' said Matcham, "'I was in the right. Come, cruel. I be lame. I be weary. I resist not. I ne'er did thee hurt. Come, beat me, coward!' Dick raised the belt at this last provocation, but Matcham winced and drew himself together with so cruel an apprehension that his heart failed him yet again. The strap fell by his side, and he stood irresolute, feeling like a fool. "'A plague upon thee, shrew,' he said. "'And ye be so feeble of hand, you should keep the closer guard upon your tongue. But I'll be hanged before I beat you.' And he put on his belt again. "'Beat you I will not,' he continued, "'but forgive you never. I knew ye not. Ye were my master's enemy. I lent you my horse.' My dinner ye have eaten, ye have called me a man of wood, a coward, and a bully. Nay, by the mass, the measure is filled and runneth over. Tis a great thing to be weak, I trow. Ye can do your worst, yet shall none punish you. Ye may steal a man's weapons in the hour of need, yet may the man not take his own again. Ye are weak, forsooth. Nay, then, if one cometh charging at you with a lance, and crieth he is weak, he must let him pierce your body through. Tut! Fool words! And yet ye beat me not, returned Matcham. Let be, said Dick, let be. I will instruct you. Ye have been ill-nurtured, methinks, and yet ye have the makings of some good, and beyond all question save me from the river. Nay, I had forgotten it. I am as thankless as thyself." But come, let us on, and we be for Holywood this night, I, or to-morrow early. We had best set forward speedily. But though Dick had talked himself back into his usual good humour, Matcham had forgiven him nothing. His violence, the recollection of the forester whom he had slain, above all the vision of the upraised belt, were things not easily to be forgotten. "'I will thank you for the form's sake.' said Matcham. But in sooth, good Master Shelton, I had liever find my way alone. Here is a wide wood. Prithee, let each choose his path. I owe you a dinner and a lesson. Fare ye well. Nay, cried Dick, if that be your tune, so be it, and a plague be with you. Each turned aside, and they began walking off severally, with no thought of the direction, intent solely on their quarrel. But Dick had not gone ten paces ere his name was called, and Matcham came running after. "'Dick,' he said, 
it were unmannerly to part so coldly. Here is my hand, and my heart with it, for all that wherein you have so excellently served and helped me, not for the form, but from the heart, I thank you. Fare ye right well. Well, lad, returned Dick, taking the hand which was offered him, good speed to you, if speed you may. But I misdoubt it shrewdly. Ye are too disputatious. So then they separated for the second time, and presently it was Dick who was running after Matcham. Here, he said, take my crossbow, shalt not go unarmed. A crossbow, said Matcham. Nay, boy, I have neither the strength to bend nor the skill to aim with it. It were no help to me, good boy, but yet I thank you. The night had now fallen, and under the trees they could no longer read each other's face. "'I will go some little way with you,' said Dick. "'The night is dark. I would fain leave you on a path, at least. My mind misgiveth me. Ye are likely to be lost.' Without any more words he began to walk forward, and the other once more followed him. The blackness grew thicker and thicker. Only here and there, in open places, they saw the sky, dotted with small stars. In the distance the noise of the rout of the Lancastrian army still continued to be faintly audible, but with every step they left it farther in the rear. At the end of half an hour of silent progress they came forth upon a broad patch of heathy open. It glimmered in the light of the stars, shaggy with fern and islanded with clumps of yew and here they paused and looked upon each other. "'Ye are weary?' Dick said. "'Nay, I am so weary,' answered Matcham, "'that methinks I could lie down and die.' "'I hear the chiding of a river,' returned Dick. "'Let us go so far forth, for I am sore athirst.' The ground sloped down gently, and sure enough, in the bottom, they found a little murmuring river running among willows. Here they threw themselves down together by the brink, and putting their mouths to the level of a starry pool, they drank their fill. "'Dick,' said Matcham, "'it may not be. I can no more.' "'I saw a pit as we came down,' said Dick. "'Let us lie down therein and sleep.' "'Nay, but with all my heart,' cried Matcham. The pit was sandy and dry. A shock of brambles hung upon one hedge, and made a partial shelter. And there the two lads lay down, keeping close together for the sake of warmth, their quarrel all forgotten. And soon sleep fell upon them like a cloud, and under the dew and stars they rested peacefully. End of chapter Chapter 7 of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book 1, Chapter 7 The Hooded Face. They awoke in the gray of the morning. The birds were not yet in full song, but twittered here and there among the woods. 
The sun was not yet up, but the eastern sky was barred with solemn colours. Half-starved and over-weary as they were, they lay without moving, sunk in a delightful lassitude. And as they thus lay, the clang of a bell fell suddenly upon their ears. "'A bell!' said Dick, sitting up. "'Can we be, then, so near to Holywood?' A little after the bell clanged again, but this time somewhat nearer hand, and from that time forth, and still drawing nearer and nearer, it continued to sound brokenly abroad in the silence of the morning. "'Nay, what should this betoken?' said Dick, who was now broad awake. "'It is someone walking,' returned Matcham, "'and the bell tolleth ever as he moves.' "'I see that well,' said Dick. "'But wherefore? What maketh he in Tunstall Woods? "'Jack,' he added, "'laugh at me an ye will, but I like not the hollow sound of it.' "'Nay,' said Matcham, with a shiver, "'it hath a doleful note, and the day were not yet come.' But just then the bell, quickening its pace, began to ring thick and hurried, and then it gave a single hammering jangle, and was silent for a space. "'It is as though the bearer had run for a paternoster while, and then leaped the river,' Dick observed. "'And now beginneth he again to pace soberly forward,' added Matcham. "'Nay,' returned Dick, "'nay, not so soberly, Jack. "'Tis the man that walketh you right speedily.' "'Tis a man in some fear of his life, or about some hurried business. See ye not how swift the beating draweth near?' "'It is now close by,' said Matcham. They were now on the edge of the pit, and as the pit itself was on a certain eminence, they commanded a view over the greater proportion of the clearing, up to the thick woods that closed it in. The daylight, which was very clear and grey, showed them a ribband of white footpath wandering among the gorse. It passed some hundred yards from the pit, and ran the whole length of the clearing east and west. By the line of its course Dick judged it should lead more or less directly to the moat-house. Upon this path, stepping forth from the margin of the wood, a white figure now appeared. It paused a little, and seemed to look about, and then, at a slow pace, and bent almost double, it began to draw near across the heath. At every step the bell clanked. Face it had none. A white hood, not even pierced with eye-holes, veiled the head, and as the creature moved it seemed to feel its way with the tapping of a stick. Fear fell upon the lads, as cold as death. "'A leper!' said Dick hoarsely. "'His touch is death,' said Matcham. "'Let us run!' "'Not so.' returned Dick. See ye not? He is stone-blind. He guideth him with a staff. Let us lie still. The wind bloweth towards the path, and he will go by and hurt us not. Alas, poor soul, and we should rather pity him. I will pity him when he is by, replied Matcham. The blind leper was now about halfway towards them, and just then the sun rose and shone full on his veiled face. He had been a tall man before he was bowed by his disgusting sickness, and even now he walked with a vigorous step. The dismal beating of his bell, the pattering of the stick, the eyeless screen before his countenance, and the knowledge that he was not only doomed to death and suffering, but shut out for ever from the touch of his fellow men, 
filled the lad's bosoms with dismay, and at every step that brought him nearer, their courage and strength seemed to desert them. As he came about level with the pit, he paused, and turned his face full upon the lads. "'Mary be my shield! He sees us!' said Matcham faintly. "'Hush!' whispered Dick. "'He doth but hearken. He is blind, fool!' The leper looked, or listened, whichever he was really doing, for some seconds. Then he began to move on again, but presently paused once more, and again turned and seemed to gaze upon the lads. Even Dick became dead white and closed his eyes, as if by the mere sight he might become infected. But soon the bell sounded, and this time, without any farther hesitation, the leper crossed the remainder of the little heath, and disappeared into the covert of the woods. "'He saw us,' said Matcham. "'I could swear it.' "'Tut!' returned Dick, recovering some sparks of courage. "'He but heard us. He was in fear, poor soul. And ye were blind and walked in a perpetual night. Ye would start yourself, if ever a twig rustled or a bird cried, "'Peep!' "'Dick, good Dick, he saw us,' repeated Matcham. "'When a man hearkeneth, he doth not as this man. He doth otherwise, Dick. This was seeing, it was not hearing. He means foully. Hark, else, if his bell be not stopped!' Such was the case. The bell rang no longer. "'Nay,' said Dick, "'I like that not. Nay,' he cried again, "'I like that little. What may this betoken? Let us go by the mass.' "'He has gone east,' added Matcham. "'Good Dick, let us go westward straight. I shall not breathe till I have my back turned upon that leper.' "'Jack, you are too cowardly,' replied Dick. We shall go fair for Holywood, or as fair at least as I can guide you, and that will be due north. They were afoot at once, passed the stream upon some stepping-stones, and began to mount on the other side, which was steeper, towards the margin of the wood. The ground became very uneven, full of knolls and hollows. Trees grew scattered or in clumps. It became difficult to choose a path, and the lads somewhat wandered. They were weary, besides, with yesterday's exertions and the lack of food, and they moved but heavily and dragged their feet among the sand. Presently, coming to the top of a knoll, they were aware of the leper, some hundred feet in front of them, crossing the line of their march by a hollow. His bell was silent, his staff no longer tapped the ground, and he went before him with the swift and assured footsteps of a man who sees. Next moment he had disappeared into a little thicket. The lads at the first glimpse had crouched behind a tuft of gorse. There they lay, horror-struck. "'Certain he pursueth us,' said Dick. "'Certain! He held the clapper of his bell in one hand, saw ye? That it should not sound. Now may the saints aid and guide us, for I have no strength to combat pestilence.' "'What maketh he?' cried Matcham. What doth he want? Who ever heard the like, that a leper, out of mere malice, should pursue unfortunates? Hath he not his bell to that very end, that people may avoid him? Dick, there is below this something deeper. Nay, I care not, moaned Dick. The strength has gone out of me. 
My legs are like water. The saints be mine assistance. Would you lie there idle? cried Matcham. Let us back into the open. We have the better chance. He cannot steal upon us unawares. Not I, said Dick. My time is come, and peradventure he may pass us by. Bend me, then, your bow, cried the other. What, will ye be a man? Dick crossed himself. Would ye have me shoot upon a leper? he cried. The hand would fail me. Nay, now, he added, nay, now, let be. With sound men I will fight, but not with ghosts and lepers, which this is I wot not. One or other, heaven be our protection. Now, said Matcham, if this be man's courage, what a poor thing is man! But sith he will do naught, let us lie close. Then came a single broken jangle on the bell. He hath missed his hold upon the clapper, whispered Matcham. Saints, how near he is! But Dick answered never a word. His teeth were near chattering. Soon they saw a piece of the white robe between some bushes. Then the leper's head was thrust forth from behind a trunk, and he seemed narrowly to scan the neighbourhood before he once again withdrew. To their stretched senses the whole bush appeared alive with rustlings and the creak of twigs, and they heard the beating of each other's heart. Suddenly, with a cry, the leper sprang into the open close by, and ran straight upon the lads. They, shrieking aloud, separated and began to run different ways, but their horrible enemy fastened upon Matcham, ran him swiftly down, and had him almost instantly a prisoner. The lad gave one scream that echoed high and far over the forest. He had one spasm of struggling, and then all his limbs relaxed, and he fell limp into his captor's arms. Dick heard the cry and turned. He saw Matcham fall, and on the instant his spirit and his strength revived. With a cry of pity and anger, he unslung and bent his arbalest. But ere he had time to shoot, the leper held up his hand. "'Hold your shot, Dickon!' cried a familiar voice. "'Hold your shot, mad wag! Know ye not a friend?' And then, laying down Matcham on the turf, he undid the hood from off his face, and disclosed the features of Sir Daniel Brackley. "'Sir Daniel!' cried Dick. "'Ay, by the mass, Sir Daniel!' returned the knight. "'Would you shoot upon your guardian, rogue? But here is this!' And there he broke off, and pointing to Matcham, asked, "'How call ye him, Dick?' "'Nay,' said Dick, "'I call him Master Matcham. Know ye him not? He said ye knew him.' "'Ay,' replied Sir Daniel, "'I know the lad,' and he chuckled. But he has fainted, and by my sooth he might have had less to faint for. Hey, Dick, did I put the fear of death upon you? Indeed, Sir Daniel, you did that, said Dick, and sighed again at the mere recollection. Nay, sir, saving your respect, I had as lief have met the devil in person, and to speak truth I am yet all a-quake. But what made you, sir, in such a guise?' Sir Daniel's brow grew suddenly black with anger. "'What made I?' he said. "'You do well to mind me of it. What? I skulked for my poor life in my own wood of Tunstall, Dick. We were ill-sped at the battle. We but got there to be swept among the rout. Where be all my good men-at-arms? Dick, by the mass I know not. 
we were swept down. The shot fell thick among us. I have not seen one man in my own colour since I saw three fall. For myself I came sound to Shoreby, and being mindful of the black arrow got me this gown and bell, and came softly by the path for the moat-house. There is no disguise to be compared with it. The jingle of this bell would scare me the stoutest outlaw in the forest. They would all turn pale to hear it. At length I came by you and Matcham. I could see but evilly through this same hood, and was not sure of you, being chiefly, and for many a good cause, astonished at the finding you together. Moreover, in the open, where I had to go slowly and tap with my staff, I feared to disclose myself. But see, he added, this poor shrew begins a little to revive. A little good canary will comfort me the heart of it. The knight, from under his long dress, produced a stout bottle, and began to rub the temples and wet the lips of the patient, who returned gradually to consciousness, and began to roll dim eyes from one to another. "'What cheer, Jack?' said Dick. "'It was no leper, after all. It was Sir Daniel. See?' "'Swallow me a good draught of this,' said the knight. "'This will give you manhood. Thereafter I will give you both a meal, and we shall all three on to Tunstall. For, Dick,' he continued, laying forth bread and meat upon the grass, "'I will avow to you in all good conscience. It irks me sorely to be safe between four walls.' Not since I backed a horse have I been pressed so hard. Peril of life, jeopardy of land and livelihood, and, to sum up, all these losels in the wood to hunt me down. But I be not yet shent. Some of my lads will pick me their way home. Hatch hath ten fellows. Selden he had six. Nay, we shall soon be strong again. And if I can but buy my peace with my right fortunate and undeserving Lord of York— why, Dick, will be a man again, and go a horseback. And so saying, the knight filled himself a horn of canary, and pledged his ward in dumb show. Selden, Dick faltered, Selden, and he paused again. Sir Daniel put down the wine untasted. How? he cried in a changed voice. Selden, speak, what of Selden? Dick stammered forth the tale of the ambush and the massacre. The knight heard in silence, but as he listened his countenance became convulsed with rage and grief. "'Now here!' he cried. "'On my right hand I swear to avenge it. If that I fail, if that I spill not ten men's souls for each, may this hand wither from my body. I broke this Duckworth like a rush. I beggared him to his door.' I burned the thatch above his head. I drove him from this country. And now, cometh he back to beard me? <laughs> Nay, but, Duckworth, this time it shall go bitter hard. He was silent for some time, his face working. Eat, he cried, suddenly. And you here, he added to Matcham, swear me an oath to follow straight to the moat-house. I will pledge mine honour, replied Matcham. "'What make I with your honour? cried the knight. "'Swear me upon your mother's welfare.' Matcham gave the required oath, and Sir Daniel readjusted the hood over his face, and prepared his bell and staff. To see him once more in that appalling travesty somewhat revived the horror of his two companions, but the knight was soon upon his feet. "'Eat with dispatch,' he said, 
and follow me yearly to mine house. And with that he set forth again into the woods, and presently after the bell began to sound, numbering his steps, and the two lads sat by their untasted meal, and heard it die slowly away uphill into the distance. "'And so ye go to Tunstall?' Dick inquired. "'Yea, verily,' said Matcham, "'when needs must. I am braver behind Sir Daniel's back than to his face.' They ate hastily, and set forth along the path through the airy upper levels of the forest, where great beeches stood apart among green lawns, and the birds and squirrels made merry on the boughs. Two hours later they began to descend upon the other side, and already, among the tree-tops, saw before them the red walls and roofs of Tunstall House. "'Here,' said Matcham, pausing, "'ye shall take your leave of your friend Jack, whom ye are to see no more. Come, Dick, forgive him what he did amiss, as he, for his part, cheerfully and lovingly forgiveth you.' "'And wherefore so?' asked Dick. "'And we both go to Tunstall, I shall see you yet again, I trow, and that right often.' "'You'll never again see poor Jack Matcham,' replied the other. "'That was so fearful and burthensome, and yet plucked you from the river. You'll not see him more, Dick, by mine honour. He held his arms open, and the lads embraced and kissed. "'And Dick,' continued Matcham, "'my spirit bodeth ill. You are now to see a new Sir Daniel, for heretofore hath all prospered in his hands exceedingly, and fortune followed him. But now, methinks, when his fate hath come upon him, and he runs the adventure of his life, he will prove but a foul lord to both of us. He may be brave in battle, but he hath the liar's eye. There is fear in his eye, Dick, and fear is as cruel as the wolf. We go down into that house. St. Mary guide us forth again. And so they continued their descent in silence, and came out at last before Sir Daniel's forest stronghold, where it stood, low and shady, flanked with round towers, and stained with moss and lichen, in the lilied waters of the moat. Even as they appeared, the doors were opened, the bridge lowered, and Sir Daniel himself, with Hatch and the parson at his side, stood ready to receive them. End of chapter.